นโมทัสสะบุคคะตัวรหัตัวสัมมาสัมบุทัสสะนโมทัสสะบุคคะตัวรหัตัวสัมมาสัมบุทัสสะนโมทัสสะบุคคะตัวรหัตัวสัมมาสัมบุทัสสะพุทธังธรรมังสังฆังนมัสสะท a ่วันนี้เราได้มีผู้ท่องเที่ยวที่มาที่นี่ในโรงเรียนในโรงเรียนในโรงเรียนในโรงเรียนในโรงเรียนในโรงเรียนในโรงเรียนในโรงเรียนในโรงเรียนในโรงเรียน You get a lot of people wanting to turn up to talk about patience, to reflect on patience in a, a world that's all about instant gratification. The, the website doesn't open in so many nanoseconds; you switch to another one, or if somebody doesn't reply to your email within a few hours or at least a few days, you start thinking something's wrong. And, Clearly, there's uh, enough people around who r e c o g n i z e that this being addicted to rapid gratification is a recipe for dissatisfaction. It is not the way to contentment, and certainly, this is um, uh, being addicted to rapid gratification is not what the Buddha taught. Quite the opposite, and uh, this, he held up. Patient endurance, as in fact he called it, the ultimate paramanta um, potitika, the ultimate force for transformation. We tend to think of patient endurance as like a second-rate practice. You know, well, I'll be patient. I know. Well, that's not uh, that's not what's being referred to in the, the Buddha's teaching. There's uh, Patient endurance is is a profoundly important tool, and as a practice, it's uh, it's wonderful. You can't you can't really fail at it. Like a lot of practices we take on, you you, know, you try to develop samadhi, and if you don't reach the jhanas, you feel like you're a failure, and you try to develop loving kindness. If you end up hating everybody, you're a failure. But with patient endurance, it doesn't matter. You can't fail really. If you do fail, well, you're just patient with it. Patient endurance is an excellent practice, and the good thing about patient endurance is you can't develop it when you're having a good time. If you're having a good time, you can't develop patient endurance. You can only develop patient endurance when things are difficult, and so it's something we can always turn to and feel good about. And so, to raise it up, to really raise it up, and be quite conscious of the the place of this. This is a this is a force for transformation. You know, this is not just something you do when you know you're you're not you don't know how to practice. You know, Ajahn Chah talking about patient endurance, and as you will have heard me mention just once or twice, he says in the end he says that's all there is is patient endurance. Tengti sut, kami oton panana. 
you tried all your other tricks, you you try to understand things and get some little insight going and studied and try to find some answers and you try to feel positive about things and nothing works and maybe you already do have some insight and practice but over and over again we'll come up against these feelings of being obstructed and nothing seems to work but there's always something that works always always patience works always we can get stronger by making the resolution to be patient and it is it's a it's important to understand it's a choice we can exercise. It's not like, well, I'm, I'm not a patient kind of guy. We could say that. That's true, actually. <laughs> I'm not a patient kind of guy. But there's something we can do about it. And the wonderful thing about Pawana, about the Buddha's teaching, this is about a cultivation. This is We take what we've got, we meet ourselves where we're at, and then we move on. And so even if... Even if we're the world's most impatient, impossible character, we can be patient with that. Even if we endlessly fail at everything we try to do, we can be patient with that. We can choose. We can make that choice. And, and it's a wise choice, actually. It's a wise choice to determine to begin again. And no outlaws, you know, like that's quite normal. You say, well, I'll marry this person, but I want some prenuptial agreement that means if it doesn't work, I can get out of it. Or, you know, I'll become a monk, but I'll leave some money in the bank with my family in case it doesn't work out, then I can get out of it. And and we often secure ourselves, or try to secure ourselves. That's the thing. We try to secure ourselves with an out clause. But from the Buddhist perspective, that's the opposite of real security. Always setting ourselves up without clauses. And so with the cultivation of patient endurance, one of the best ways to approach it is just to say, no out clause. I don't care how many lifetimes it takes me to awaken, I'm going to resolve to be patient with whatever happens. It doesn't matter how many times I feel obstructed, limited, disappointed, upset, I'm going to be patient with the results. This life and any future life until we find awakening. And there's a real strength that comes from exercising that choice. And, well, that's the theory. The practice, of course, as we say, the proof is in the pudding. When we really do it, then we start, oh, yeah, I can make this choice. I'm allowed to make this choice. It's an interesting thing. It's like, we're allowed to be patient. You know, we don't have to get rid of all of our problems. We don't have to have insights. We don't have to like everybody. We don't have to forgive everybody. We don't have to get on with our parents. We can be patient. We can exercise the limitations that we have. And So it's a profoundly, uh, I find, a very inspiring virtue to reflect on. And I'm certainly happy that today such a good bunch of people turned up to spend the day with Ajahn Abhidanda reflecting on this virtue. And of course I'm also pleased, and I take it as a very good sign, that um, we have Mark Piano here taking the Anagarika precepts, that in this, this world of, of uh, promising happiness through rapid gratification of our, our constant stream of desires, uh, here's somebody who says, enough. And decides to slow down, 
to slow down to. Instead of wanting more, making the choice to live a life with less. And again, it's like with patience, it's a, a conscious choice. You know, I've known Mark for a good number of years. I know he's a, he's a very competent fellow, a qualified lawyer, and I could rattle off a list of achievements that he's realized in the material world. And so he knows how to get around out there, but he's now exercising this choice out of the intuition that deciding to live with less is a worthwhile experiment. Now, of course, there's no guarantee. Shaving the head and cancelling your social network accounts and putting on white robes doesn't guarantee anything. This is the form of making a choice to live a homeless life. That's what anagarika means. It means homeless. So uh, by the age of 29, Mark has attained the state of homelessness. Tomorrow he can send an email to all his friends and family to say, I've realized homelessness. And, of course, <laughs> on the level of form, you know, from the, uh, the outer perspective, he said, well, actually, it's not, it's not really a great attainment, is it? By 29, you'd expect to be doing something more than that. But on the level of spirit, and this is important, with, with a ritual like this, with taking the renunciate precepts, the eight precepts of an Anagarika, on the level of form, you say, well, it's not that impressive, really, is it? You know, not eating in the evening, you know, giving up, you know, playing the piano and, and putting on makeup and so on. I mean, that's not exactly, <laughs> it's not world-shattering significance. However, the form is only, the, that's only one part. The spirit is the main part. And this is a, uh, this is always, I find, always a worthwhile contemplation to see the place of form and the place of spirit. The spirit of the homeless, taking up the homeless life, is the spirit is exercising the choice to seek unshakable security. That's what the, again what the Buddha talked about here. Jitang Yasang Nakampati, that heart that is Nakampati, that is unshakably secure. It's something the Buddha himself realized and he when he made all the effort for all that time to investigate the actuality of suffering. What is this condition that we all struggle with? You know, whatever aspirations and wonderful experiences we all have, over and over again we come up against this feeling of limitation. We find that we're making a problem out of life. Life is what it is. The world is what it is. The world is not a problem. Life is not a problem. The Buddha lived on this planet like we did. He ate breakfast, he took a shower, he walked around, he lived in just the same planet as we did, and he had no problems. And yet we, over and over again, experience problems, the feeling of limitation. The Buddha realized that which is limitless, and the word we have for that is awakening. So what is it that we do whereby we make a choice to settle for this limited sense of security which ends up creating problems? You know, we get attached over and over again we get attached. Well, if we have an intuition that this is the game we're up to, we're getting attached to all these sights, sounds, smells, tastes, touches and mental impressions, all the stuff of our experience, well, then we can get interested in simplifying it. Not a rejection. A lot of the sights are very beautiful, fascinating, scintillating, interesting. But our problem is that we get attached to it over and over again and even when we determine not to, 
We do. We get attached to our friends. We get attached to our opinions. We get attached to our memories, even the painful memories. We get attached to them. We get attached to our fantasies of the future. The positive ones, we get overly excited about them. And the negative fantasies about the future downright fill us with terror. And so why do we keep doing So this is the question that uh, people like Mark come up with. Why do we keep doing this? And so we get interested. Okay, well, the thing to do is instead of increasing our activity and increasing our possessions and feeding our relative sense of security of having a home and having a bank account and, and having various social network accounts which give us a relative sense of security, we start to frustrate those. So this is, I tell people that uh, joining the monastic community is like taking on a course in strategic frustration. This is intentionally putting ourselves under stress. That's the spirit. That's the spirit. It's not, it's not a moral judgment about eating in the evening or, or enjoying playing a musical instrument or whatever. This is, this is not that. It's a, it's a choice to simplify life, to intentionally put ourselves under stress in a similar way that a sportsman or sportswoman would put themselves under stress. Now, a sports person doesn't become excellent at their sport by hanging out on the beach. You know, I mean, there's a place that, you know, a little hanging out on the beach is all right, really. A little sunshine, wouldn't mind some sunshine and hanging out on the beach. But if that's all we do, we don't get strong. How do you get strong as a sports person? You put yourself under stress. So there is such a thing as functional stress. There's also, of course, we all know such a thing as dysfunctional stress or unhelpful stress. And so it is true, similar in the, um, in the renunciate life, the life of an anagarika or a summoner or a bhikkhu. There is uh, helpful ways of putting ourselves under pressure and frustration and stress, and there's unhelpful ways. And, and herein lies the, the benefit of having wise teachers. So, of course, we're all very fortunate as followers of the Buddha and the great enlightened disciples that we have those who've gone before us who have performed this experiment, this investigation into the actuality of our life. What are these apparent problems that we create over and over again? What's actually going on? People have done this before us and they, they can teach us. And so this is what Mark is aligning himself with. He's picking up these training structures so that he can perform the experiment for himself. Now, the Buddha was very clear. He says, I can't do it for you. You know, all the Buddha, I can but point the way, is what the Buddha said. I can but point the way. I've followed this ancient path and I've found this ancient city and it's great, but all I can do is point the way. And so we have to make these experiments with life ourselves. And, and make these investigations ourselves. And so here in Mark picks up the Anagarika training and over the next few days, weeks, months, who knows, maybe years, let's hope, he'll become familiar with these opportunities to train. And the training, even if initially, sometimes the training, we can't see the point in it. You know, like... Often people come to the monastery 
and they see all this bowing going on here, what's the point of bowing? Like, for instance, every time we come into the Dhamma Hall here, we stop and bow three times. Now, even if you're coming in to get something, coming in to get a zafu or something, you come into the Dhamma Hall, stop, bow three times, get where you want to go, stop, bow three times. What's the point of that? Well, the point of it, actually, the form is one thing, but the spirit, the point of it, is learning how to stop and begin again, to bring us back to this moment. The ignorant personality, the deluded personality, is caught up in the momentum of always what the Buddha called becoming, always going somewhere, doing something, achieving something, or trying to. And it becomes like, it becomes like a wheel. In fact, that's what it's called in the Pali word, sangsara. This wheel going on and on and on, and always going somewhere. And so, part of the training that uh, certainly in the monastic life, but also uh, equally so, householders can pick up this training and to you know bowing to the shrine, the Buddha that represents perfect wisdom and perfect compassion for us. And so, whenever we come in front of the shrine, we stop and we bow. And by the third bow, hopefully. Here we are again, all right. New moment, begin again. And so this is actually a big part of the training for Anagarikas, Samaneras and Bhikkhus to remind ourselves, we have these structures for reminding ourselves of the infinite possibility for beginning again. Again, similar with patience, it really doesn't matter how often we fail so long as we begin again. What matters is how long it takes us to remember to begin again. If we want a barometer for practice, it's not like, do we forget? Do we become heedless? Do we? It's like with judo. It's not whether you fall, but how you fall and how do you get up again. Hmm? That's the skill. And so this is a training, and as I said, with bowing and uh, in the relationships we have with each other, yeah, when you, uh, you, you come to see the teacher, you stop and you bow. You have a conversation with the teacher and then you stop and then you bow. So that we're always interrupting this tendency we have to be compulsively always doing the next thing. We're so busy trying to do the next thing, we never actually do this. So no wonder we always feel limited. No wonder we always feel frustrated. No wonder we always feel unfulfilled because we're never really doing this. Yeah, we're never really doing what we're doing. We're so busy with the next thing. And so the very important part of the monastic training is to cultivate this willingness. Again, like with patience, we don't have to succeed. What we cultivate is the willingness, the willingness to be patient. Or in this case, the willingness to begin again. And so... Here we are with Mark taking up this Anagarika training and be very wise on this occasion to make a very firm resolution that whatever happens, whatever happens for the rest of this life, as soon as we remember to come back to this moment, it's new. We begin again. And the truth is, it actually is like that. This moment is actually always new. We forget this. You know, we, we get caught up in memories of the past and 
fantasies of the future and we forget the actuality, the reality. The reality is this moment is always fresh. This moment has always got the possibility for discovering something new, absolutely new. It's always inherent in this moment. We're discovering something new. We're all looking for something new. We're all looking for wisdom. We're all looking for compassion. We're all looking for these virtues. Where do they exist in this moment? And so part of the point of taking up an actual training, you know, like the monastic training, is to instill these principles to really bring us back, you know, to slow down, to stop, to remember. And in the moment of remembering, there's a little letting go. A little letting go. Okay. Sometimes we can, we can um, in our spiritual pursuits, we can, we can get caught up into a momentum of, of becoming spiritual. You know, thinking we're becoming enlightened or becoming more compassionate or becoming more wise. And, and actually, we can just be becoming more conceited or more stubborn, or more disappointed. Where if we're practicing wisely, if we're practicing with a commitment to simplicity, to beginning again, over and over, beginning again, then we'll realize the benefit in these small moments, the small moments of letting go of the momentum. We'll really appreciate, really appreciate, get the feeling of the validity, the value of small moments of letting go. In the beginning, of course, most of us start off in practice with these grandiose fantasies of enlightenment and this miserable ordeal that I've got myself caught up in and then we hear the enlightenment of the Buddha and we read about the great arahants and we have these radiant fantasies of blazing uh, enlightenment and we think, that's what I want, I'm going to strive for that and, and my, my bones break and my blood dry up and I will not move from this place. And we have such, such uh, grandiose fantasies. But the more we practice, hopefully, the more we bow, the more supple we become, the more present we become for this moment. And with that comes the humility and the genuine appreciation for small moments of letting go. Ajahn Chah used to give the example, he would say, uh, Sometimes he'd sit there with a, a bottle of water and he would turn the bottle of water until little drips of water would come out. He says, this is like, so this is like your little moments of mindfulness. So one drip, drip, drip. The moments of mindfulness are great. It's just the bits in between when we're not mindful, they're not great. When we forget ourselves, when we lose ourselves, when we get heedless. The moments of mindfulness are great. We feel really good about that. And then he says, all you need to do is actually just increase the effort. So there's more moments of mindfulness. So it becomes drippity, drippity, drip. And then, if you say, really, when you really got it, it becomes a stream. It's the same moments of mindfulness. It's not something else. You know, we can think, I've got to have this special moment. I've got to have this great awakening moment. And no, no, that's a grandiose fantasy. That's for serious beginners. You know, when we start to make a little progress in practice, we realize we can let go of those ideas of these great big moments and find contentment in little moments of letting go of letting go of the addiction to this false security, to my way. 
the controlling, deluded personality that always wants to get my way. The addiction, it is literally addiction. What much of the world is about promoting, uh, what we're interested in doing is actually letting go. Letting go of growing out of this addiction, coming off this addiction to the promotion of me and my way. And you start to say, oh, look at that, I don't have to win that argument. Oh, what a joy. I don't have to win that argument. I can let the other person win. Or if somebody criticizes us unjustly, don't have to fight back and say, I didn't do this. Oh, look at that. That little moment, these little moments. Again, in the, uh, the scriptures, in the tradition, there's a Dhammapada verse where the Buddha talks about this. Verse 122, I think it is, Venerable Venita will correct me if I've got it wrong, where the Buddha says, do not ignore moments of right action. Just as a water barrel is filled drop by drop, so moment by moment the wise become replete with goodness. We can ignore the little moments and hold on to this fantasy of the great awakening or whatever we have this. That can just be an excuse, actually, for not coming back, for slowing down and humbly accepting the reality of this moment. So begin again, begin again. So if we start to experience that, there's a huge relief. You know, the world, of course, again, the promotion of personality, always trying to, to be the boss, to be number one, to be the master. But what a chore that is. Yeah. What a chore to always have to be number one. And I still have a very uh, vivid memory of this would be something like 22 years ago where I had been asked to come and take over being the leader of this community. And it was just, um, I think, 1991, I think it was. And it was quite a, um, a daunting task, to be honest. Uh, there had been a lot of difficulties, and uh, a lot of difficulties. And, and the, the lay people and the monastic residents and, and uh, the trustees, there was some things been happening that meant there was, it wasn't, it wasn't a, a cushy posting, I can tell you. And so, but anyway, I was asked to do it, and so we were having our winter retreat at the time, and I was spending the winter retreat at Amaravati with Lumpur Sumato. And partway through this retreat, I realised that I was really, um, I was really suffering over this idea of going to Harnam and becoming the abbot. It was really playing on my mind a lot. And I think, I don't know what it was, but I think it might have been during the chanting where we were chanting the, te- the, the morning or evening chanting in Pali and in English. And the words say, I am the Dhamma's servant. The Dhamma is my Lord and guide. I am the Buddha's servant. The Buddha is my Lord. And something clicked. I thought, all oh, right, that's what I want to do. I want to be a servant. I had this idea that somehow I, in the abbot, master, boss, number one, and it was a real burden, being attached to the view of being a master is just more delusion. Just another expression of deluded personality, trying to find some sort of security by clinging to a position. What's really on offer in this spiritual discipline that we call Buddhism, what's really on offer is the opportunity to serve the Dhamma, to serve the Buddha, to serve the Sangha, to serve the Triple Gem, 
And what a beautiful thing that is when we start to get a feeling for that. And, and what we're experiencing, of course, the beauty we're experiencing is the letting go of the burden, the dropping of the burden of becoming, of, of always serving these deluded fantasies of having to be a solid somebody with a future going somewhere. So we have these trainings, these practices, these encouragements. That's what religion is about. Not just Buddhism, or actually all the, the world great religions. Rajan Punya was telling me that um, I think the abbot of, of the, where he went to school was asked, what's the point of religion? And his answer was, preparing to die. Said, oh, what a wonderful answer. Yeah, preparing to die. Yeah. We're so attached to this momentum of me and mine, but we are going to die. And so again, as Ajahn Chah used to say, he says, die before you die. Hyman die gone. Ya die gone. Don't die gone, die. And it's the same word in Thai. You know, die before you die. And this dying, of course, we're not, you know, you don't want to die before you die. You don't want to die physically before you realize the death from the deluded personality. And that's what this training's about. And that's not necessarily having to have some amazing, great big moment that totally transform our, transforms our life, but the small moments, appreciating these small moments, the moments that we recognize we can let go of controlling. That's the deluded personality is always, it always believes that it'll only be happy when we're in control, when we're in charge. Whereas this training is about recognizing that, not judging it, not making a problem out of it, not even trying to get rid of it, but seeing through it. Yeah. It's, like, it's like seeing a, a thief, like recognizing a thief. You, you, know, you wonder where, you know, who's, who's stealing the, the cabbages out of my garden? You know, I put all this effort into growing cabbages and somebody's stealing them and then you see the neighbor one night coming over in the night with his torch, stealing your cabbages. Oh, right, that neighbor, I thought he was a nice guy. Actually, he's a thief. And when you recognize the thief, well, then your relationship changes to the thief. You know? Well, so it is with our addiction to becoming, with our addiction to serving the desires that the deluded personality hangs on to. So if we start to see this, then again, there's a small moments of willingness to let go and begin again come back to this moment and begin again. And instead of living out of an addiction to controlling, we become inspired by the possibility of living out of trust. Yeah. Not controlling virtual reality, but trusting in this moment, trusting in actuality. And trust, like patience, it sounds, you know, if you don't really investigate, it sounds a bit wimpish. You know, trust, faith, I mean come on, get a life. You want to be assertive and effective. Well, being effective from the Buddhist perspective, living in faith. Ajahn Chah had a wonderful way of talking about faith. He did the three levels of faith. He said the first level of faith is, is like, it's a, it's like belief. You, know, you hear some teachings and say, oh, that makes sense. And you believe in it and you feel you've got a new level of confidence. But it's a spurious kind of faith. It's not really secure. We haven't really tested it yet. Give you a lot of energy. 
maybe even get a little evangelical with your newfound faith. But, of course, um, that's just an initial level of faith. The next level of faith he called as verified faith, where you apply, based on faith, we let go of our controlling tendencies, we willingly submit ourselves to the training, we learn to bow with more presence to this moment and give ourselves to this moment, this moment, this moment, and then the medicine works. Something shifts and you see something that you've never seen before. So, all right, I didn't do that. I didn't do that. I didn't make that happen, that shift. I didn't do it. It happened because I wasn't doing what I normally do, which is cling and control. And that's verified faith and the, the sense of, of, of strong confidence in the practice of beginning again, of letting go. And then, well, Ajahn Chah is talking about this. He says, that's not the goal either. The goal is the unshakable faith of an awakened being. It's the unshakable faith. The unshakable faith is born out of there's nothing to doubt. An awakened being, it's not that an awakened being has something special. The awakened being doesn't have what we have, which is doubt. The awakened being just sees moment by moment by moment the actuality of the moment. Desire is like that. Cling to it, you'll get burnt. Ill will is like that. The awakened being sees ill will is like that. Don't touch it. You cling to it, you get burnt. Delusion is like that. You cling to it, you get burnt. So the awakened being sees greed, aversion, and illusion for what they are, and therefore is cooled. It never gets burnt. So what increases in living a life of faith is a sense of energy and enthusiasm, a sense of daring. When there's strong faith, then you don't have to be afraid to doubt. Sometimes we see doubt as, as a problem or as an obstruction. But when there's strong faith, doubt becomes interesting. It doesn't, doesn't, doesn't become pleasant, but it becomes interesting because doubt draws our attention into what's actually going on, what's the reality. And again, talking about our teacher, Ajahn Chah, is one of the, I think for many of us, one of the great inspiring aspects of his teaching was Ajahn Chah wasn't afraid of doubt. Over and over again, he would talk about how doubt was a great teacher in his own practice. And so when, as Westerners, we were full of doubt and questions about everything and, and making a problem out of questioning everything, he wasn't intimidated. He says, oh, yeah, I've been like that. Yeah. And so we don't have to be afraid of doubt. We don't have to be afraid of daring. In fact, daring is called for. Yeah. If we want to discover something new, if we want to know what it means to have unshakable security, which we don't have. That's new. That's, that's really radical. That, hardly anybody around has got that. Yeah. And we're interested in that. Yeah. If we're interested in real, unshakable security, that we need to be daring. And where does that daring spirit come from? Faith. Yeah. So. so then it's also the question comes up, quite rightly, where do we get, what protects us in the process? How, how, what protects us? What looks after us? Well, what looks after us is what Marcus went through, taking the precepts. Our, our precepts is what looks after us. Well, there's two things that look after us. There's two things 
that protect us on this journey, our precepts and our friends, our spiritual companions. So again, those who are familiar with the basic Buddha's teaching, as the Buddha pointed out, that kalyanamitta or, or spiritual companionship is essential. It's not just a kind of a, a reasonable option or an interesting option, it's essential. Spiritual companionship. So precepts are essential. Friends are essential. And our precepts and our friends protect us, like we do with the chanting. We say with the chanting, the Dhamma protects who uphold it from falling into delusion. When we look after our spiritual companions, then our companions look after us. When we look after our precepts, the more impeccable we are with our precepts, the more secure we feel. So on this occasion, I'm sure I speak for all the community when I say that uh, we wish Mark all the very best in his training and trust that we will all be good friends that support you in the process. Thank you very much for your attention.